Hello everyone, and welcome to Seaview Quantum Network. I'm your presenter Daniel, and I'm here with your host Claudia Pareco. What is From Fashion to Enlightenment? It's a personal perspective of a blessed life, an empowering journey of how host Anastasia Hayes Piper worked her way from the cover of Women's Home Companion 1947 through the fashion and cosmetic companies of Yves Saint Laurent, Estee Lauder, Lancome, Gianni Versace, and Gucci. Then on to 15 plus years of service in the nonprofit sector serving with the Muscular Dystrophy Association, Save Venice, and the Prasad Project. This work took Anastasia around the world where her passion for the diversity of people's lives was able to flourish. Today, Anastasia is an inspirational intellectual medium. She connects to the spirit world through her lineages and is used as a vehicle for messages to empower and uplift. Anastasia's mastery lies in working with people to elevate and expand their light. During each episode, Anastasia shares her experiences, wisdom, laughter, and personal photos. It's a fun and introspective journey for all who listen, live or on demand. Call for free at 805-830-8344 and wait in line or use Take My Call. And for $11, you can jump the long list of callers. Do so at www.paypal.me slash p-u-r-e-c-o slash 11. And then please PM or email Claudia Pareco with the phone number you'll call the show at cview one 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 at gmail.com tune in mondays and fridays at 12 p.m eastern time to see view and listen to all our shows for more information visit cview1111.net and look under monthly shows get in touch with anastasia at her website www.heavenlymusings.org let go Embrace change and be happy. Thank you, Danny, and welcome everybody to From Fashion to Enlightenment, a Blessed Life. Today is September 9th, and it's a great energy of crystal light that has been activating with the opening of the multidimensional 994. Our host, Anastasia, will continue her story of transformation and invites our listeners to take the leap, as she did, when she decided to move to Paris to follow her dreams in the fashion industry. She was real to herself, and that leap put her in contact with big personalities like Givenchy, Yves Saint Laurent, Bill Blass, Richard Solomon, and so on. Anastasia later reflected on those people that kind of appeared on her life when she needed them the most. These people reminded her she was not a nut and they touched her life in the most meaningful way. Each one of them left an imprint in Anastasia's heart and from meeting them on, she was never ever the same. Some call these people your earth angels. So let's bring Anastasia to the show so 
she can continue with her uh, journey of transformation. Hey, Anastasia. Hello, Claudia. Good morning. Hello. <laughs> it's so nice to be here on such an auspicious day, too. It is, and I can't wait to continue listening to your story and the fashion industry, the people you met, and how we were talking, and yeah, sometimes you meet people, they live, and it's only when you reflect back onto that moment you, and you understand, oh, that's why he said such and such, or that's why I was let to go here and there. But many times in our lives, we, we just don't understand things. We are so busy living the life that we don't see things truly. It's true, and it's probably better that we don't, because we'd never accomplish anything. <laughs> I think when we overthink uh, things that are happening or try to make things happen, that is, uh, can be very problematic. So um, I'm going to, first of all, welcome everyone who's on the call. I'm so happy to be here today and share with you the next kind of steps in my life. Uh, we did childhood last time, and uh, that was very interesting because I haven't really reviewed that uh, piece, uh, and it was very interesting, and it was a great blessing for me. So uh, this time, what I'm going to be doing is to take you from, I went to you know high school, and then I started, I was going to start college, and I did for a year. But what happened was, I realized I, there was nothing of interest there. And so I asked my mother if I could go, if I could support myself, could I go to Europe, could I go to Paris and work there? And I had some family friends and I had some business connections, some designers that I knew and I connected with them. And then I came back and said to my mother, okay, I can stay here with a family friend. She has a room for me, so I'll be safe. <laughs> and because I was 19 years old, uh, but I wasn't afraid. I was just, I wanted to do something uh, that was, I felt interesting and not necessarily important, but interesting with my life. So, uh, and I love Europe. I went first time to Paris and when I was 14 and it changed my life. I sat and, and I thought to myself, I am going to live here one day. And so uh, I did. I, I flew off. I, had, uh, I worked with uh, some of the, the nicest people. Now, what I'm going to do with these stories today is I, my intention is to celebrate these great people. These people who were in my life, who came into my life, as Claudia said, as earth angels, they were they were there for me. I said yes when they offered work uh, or they offered to teach me something. I always said, yeah, sure, I'd love to do that. So that was my role. That was my part was to uh, be um, open to to that. So here I am, 19 years old, and I arrive in Paris and I start working uh, as a house model or and doing fashion shows for uh, Yves Saint Laurent, who was so wonderful and such fun. And uh, he liked me because I was, I'm a Scorpio. And he used to hire people because of their birth signs. <laughs> His business partner 
Pierre Berger didn't much like that method of hiring, but it was beneficial for me. So that was the beginning of understanding, too, that my birth sign had something and to do astrologically with what was going on. So I worked with Eve, and I worked with uh, Hubert de Givenchy. Hubert de, de Givenchy was a most interesting gentleman. He was a count, and not many counts uh, in France or anywhere else were fashion designers. So I had met him in New York and did a fashion show for him at a store called Bergdorf Goodman. And uh, the person who knew him was a good family friend. And so I got to know him in New York. And so when I told him that I was coming to Paris, he said, oh, you can do some my shows. So I had I business um, just came my way. And I was able to support myself in Paris for at that time, I stayed about a year. Um, I decided to go back to New York. And when I came back to New York, it was, uh, it was, this is all happening in the sixties, right? So I was in Paris in 67, all the changes in the world and all the, the, uh, there was so much going on in the world in 67, 68, 69, you know, including Woodstock and all of that. And I was busy working. So uh, I wasn't really a true flower child. I was later on, but <laughs> at the time it was actually happening, I was busy working because I came back to New York and I started working with Bill Blass, another wonderful man. Bill was born in Indiana. And he was, he just, he was very proud of his roots of being a Midwesterner. He was such a sweet man. And he was the funniest person I'd ever met. He, we had so much fun. I was his house model, which means he did fittings of dresses and things on me. Then I would do his fashion shows. But the environment of his office was like, it was so much fun to go to work. It wasn't work. It was like, oh my God, I get to do this for a living. And his girl Friday secretary, et cetera, Sandy Price, became my best friend. And years later, Sandy moved to Nairobi, to Kenya, and I got to go to Kenya three times to visit Sandy. So, uh, and she also was from the Midwest. She was from Lebanon, Ohio, or is from Lebanon, Ohio, and she lives in Nairobi to this day. So, uh, shout out to Sandy. And uh, so, Bill was one of the, I celebrate him because he was, he was so even, um, he was, let's see, fair. He was honest. He said to me, I'm going to teach you some business because you can do so much more than stand here and model. And I thought, oh my God, how great is that? And he was just generous. And uh, we would have dinner parties sometimes at his home. And I can remember one story that he, uh, <laughs> Bill, he, he decided after dinner, and I think we'd all had a little bit to drink. Uh, he decided after dinner we were going to raid his closet and dress up and produce a play of some sort. And we did. And, the, and it, was, it was, things were just, it was just like spontaneous joy. Uh, everyone uh, who worked or was surrounded he or he touched was um, impressed by his authenticity and his naturalness. Uh, 
And his, his clothing was very interesting. He had a niche. Bill Blass designed for the elegant woman, a woman that was his model. And my mother was that one of those women. And that's how I got to know him as a family friend, because she knew Bill and modeled in photography, modeled his clothing sometimes. And uh, his clothing was just elegant. It was very special and very elegant. He did shows across the country uh, in every city, major city, uh, Chicago, and they loved him in Texas. And he would go and he would pay attention to every client like they were the most precious person in his life. This is, this is, I saw early on what being a light being is about. He spread light and um, a beautiful energy in the world. I didn't know what it was at the time. I just knew that he was, in a way, a high being, doing doing what he his. This is what he came to do. And um, when he when he transitioned, uh, there I I missed him. So uh, all of these actually, most of these designers that I'm going to be speaking with, um, including Versace, uh, all have transitioned. And um, today, this morning, I want to share with you, as I was contemplating what to speak about today at the show and what to share with you, um, I got guidance. I felt like there was a whole, all of these beautiful beings had come to join me to allow me to share their greatness on this program. And because I, I saw their, I saw their greatness. I saw something that most people uh, didn't see. Um, some just because that was my filter. I didn't even know I had that filter, but in reflection now I see that I had that filter. So I saw the way Bill treated people and I wanted, and I treated people that way. So therefore there was a respect. And in the fashion industry uh, at that time, there was, I think more of that feeling. Uh, it certainly as everything else uh, has changed, but uh, I was very fortunate to be in it at that time. So, uh, so with Bill, I stayed with him a year or so um, because I got a call and I answered the call. The call was from Yves Saint Laurent and his manager, Pierre Berger. They had decided that, well, even before they asked me to be manager of the Reef Gauche, the boutique, the retail boutique, I had, um, and now I'm getting, I do this because it, I'm so involved with Bill. Um, yeah, I can't, so anyway, Eve asked me to, uh, and Pierre asked me to be a manager. Now he had just opened this retail store called Reeve Gauche and on Madison Avenue. And I was uh, the manager. Now I was 23 years old. I'd never managed anything, much less a store that famous people shopped in <laughs> and was very high profile. <laughs> and I just said, yes. And I said, he, because I spoke fluent French, he wanted an American a Scorpio, number one, I was Scorpio. Number two, I was an American who spoke spoke uh, fluent French. 
And he knew me from Paris, so he trusted me and liked me. So I got this huge job <laughs> overnight, practically, uh, running that boutique. And I learned so much. And some of it I had learned from Bill, from Bill Blass. Um, and then people were so kind to me. They were. I had a, a lawyer who worked for the company who at night would teach me how to do P&L uh, profit and loss statements and all this paperwork I had never had to do before. And uh, Bill was, uh, was influential in helping me too. I, I could always call him to ask questions. And Saint Laurent running that boutique really uh, put me in a category of exposure where I was photographed for a weekly uh, pay newspaper then called Women's Wear Daily. I was always in that paper next to people like uh, Valentino and other very uh, well-known designers. Um, they followed us around. Uh, uh, actually, a photographer who is well-known from his New York Times uh, days, who also has transitioned, Bill Cunningham was a friend, and he used to follow me around. And he'd call me and say, where's everybody lunching today? You know, so it was kind of like a source of... Uh, and he would uh, he would put the pictures in in Women's Wear, the New York Times, and wherever in the papers. So that was a completely different. All of a sudden, I was on the radar. I had never been. I'd always been kind of in the background. I enjoyed um, the story. It was hard work. Oh my gosh, it was very hard work. But I got to meet amazing people. One day. Uh, Tina Turner came in. She was still married to Ike in those days. And uh, she became uh, a client. And then uh, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis was a client. And she, she came in sometimes, but she usually would send her assistant over to pick up some things that she had seen or that I picked out for her to try. And uh, Robert Redford, uh, just, you know, people would just stop in and... I became very used to being around celebrities and instinctually knew that it was about treating them with respect and not differently than anyone else. And that has served me very well uh, all these years. I do not have, um, oh, how should we say it? It's just a respect factor. I think we look at each other and I respect that person and I'm not going to get caught up in, in, in what they're doing particularly. I live next door to in New York I, when I was um, at the uh, uh, Reeve Gauche boutique. I lived in an apartment that was next door to Dustin Hoffman. So I saw him every day. And uh, so you become very uh, used to uh, allowing people their privacy and just smiling at them, and uh, those those that that work and that those qualities help serve me uh, has have served me all my life. So uh, there I was, the manager of the Reeve Gauche, and one day I get a call, and uh, it's uh, Pierre Berger saying we're replacing you, <laughs> no notice, we're replacing you with a French um, friend of of Eve's. So uh, I said, okay, so how long do I have? You know, he said, a uh, couple of weeks. So what I did was I notified the American 
a group that had their the interest in Yves Saint Laurent. Yves Saint Laurent perfume and the boutique were owned at that time by Richard Solomon, who was a um, very interesting uh, and lovely gentleman who was a part of Charles of the Ritz. Charles of the Ritz was a cosmetic company that uh, was very famous for many years, a leader uh, in, uh, in the cosmetic industry. And um, when I spoke to them, they said, oh, well, we want you. Don't go anywhere else. We want you to work for us in-house. Um, and I said, okay, I don't know anything about the cosmetic industry. And he said, that's not necessary. You know how to, you know, business, you know how to, how to sell, you know, this and that. And I said, okay. Um, he said, just come and try it. So I did. I was hired by Charles of the Ritz and I became their fashion director, which was a relatively new title in the industry, which meant that I traveled the United States to department stores, to the cosmetic counters. And I did uh, little presentations for the customers and, uh, it was fascinating. I got to travel all over the country to most of the major department store chains. At that time, there were so many more. A lot of them have closed now. And it was my first experience outside. I knew Europe almost better than I knew the United States. I hadn't traveled that much in the United States. So this opening for me was I got to go to Chicago and to Dallas, Houston. Uh, I got to go to California, um, work with Robinsons in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills. It was like crazy. I loved it. It was um, hard. It was challenging, all that travel. Uh, but uh, it was so much fun. I had a great time. And with that experience, it led me to and we're now going into the 70s, uh, I met uh, Ronald Lauder. Now, the Lauder family, Estee Lauder Cosmetic Company, uh, a lovely family. Uh, two sons, the mother, Estee, her husband, Joe, uh, and then Leonard, who ran the company, and Ronald, who was a younger brother, who also was part of the company, who actually is the one who... Uh, worked on the Clinique, the new, newer brands. Uh, so I got a call from Estee Lauder, um, well, from Ronald Lauder. I met him, and uh, he, heard, he heard what I was doing at uh, Charles of the Ritz, and he said, well, how would you like to come to work for us at Clinique, a new, a new brand that we're just launching? And I went, okay. So it was like every two to three years, I would get an invitation by one of these wonderful gentlemen, usually gentlemen, uh, offering me a new opportunity. And I took it. And what I didn't realize is that I'm very much a project person. I know if you look at your life, if you've been in one place, um, one job for years. You're not a project person usually because project people jump around. And it wasn't um, it wasn't looked on um, 
too highly sometimes because they'd say, well, she can't keep a job. Well, it wasn't that at all. I just got a more interesting offer and it always worked out. And as I said before, I always said yes. So we had, um, uh, so there I am saying yes to Ronald Lauder. And I became a, um, uh, a salesperson for Clinique. And I went to the department stores, mostly in the New York area. And I learned how to do that piece of the, of the business. So each job that I had taught me another piece of a complete picture, right? So I did sales for Clinique until Leonard, uh, till Leonard Lauder, actually Ronald's brother said to me um, in, in, in a conversation, um, you should be doing more than selling in product. And I said, okay. So I, I, he said, uh, I want you to meet the Estee Lauder uh, director of uh, Estee Lauder. Uh, what was it? Uh, the training department, the training area and marketing. And um, I spoke to Ronald and I said, Ronald, they're asking me to move over from Clinique into Estee Lauder. And uh, it was still at that time a family company. It was not, uh, it was not uh, a stock or anything. They hadn't gone public. So uh, we used to chat in the elevators. You know, I'd meet Estee in the elevator and she'd ask me what's going on or hand me a lipstick. She used to do this all the time with us, with the women. She would hand us a lipstick and tell us to change our lipstick shade in the elevator. Uh, it was so funny. It was so, my, she was like my, my uh, mother. You know, she was very motherly with, with those of us who she liked, and she liked me. And uh, they came up with the idea. There was this director of training uh, position open, and I said, I would like to do it, Ronald. Would you mind if I stopped doing working at Clinique and moved over? And he said, well, I don't really like it, but I guess it's okay. So I did. I moved over to uh, this position at uh, director of training, Estee Lauder. And it was huge. Um, that was in 71, and I was there for approximately four, four years. Uh, I traveled the United States, and I taught um, teachers. I, I first hired a group of teachers. The teachers went out into the department stores in their area, and they taught whatever material I would bring with me. Uh, I would have conferences with the teachers, and I, so I taught the teachers. The teachers would then go out and teach the what we called beauty advisors, who were the women selling the cosmetics behind the counter for Estee Lauder. And it was fun. It was interesting. At home, at back at the office, I would work with Estee Lauder, and she would give me the the kind of ideas that she wanted me to to impart in the trainings. And uh, there were so many people there to help me uh, learn how to do all this. And I loved it because I kept meeting new people. I hired tr uh, trainers too, and I would find the most, the best trainers I ever hired were uh, for different sections of the United States. Were on airplane flights. <laughs> I would, as I traveled, the uh, the attendant flight attendants that we now call flight attendants, were we would be chatting and they would love that I worked for Estee Lauder. I always had samples with me. And I said, listen, if you're interested in changing careers and you want X, Y, Z, and I can probably pay you a bit more than the airlines, um, give me a call. And I hired, I don't know, five, five women that way, really great trainers. They were amazing. And uh, so that was that piece of Estee Lauder. And I wrote the 
I did a lot of writing of the, uh, like the newsletter and all the ideas that Estee would have that she wanted to share. I would sit down and she couldn't really focus too much. So I kind of jotted down words and then I'd go back and write something in my office and then I'd hand it to her. Uh, and uh, I said, okay, so does this sound okay? You, will, you know, will this work? And she was always so gentle with me uh, until something happened and she'd go off the handle like she would just, something would make her crazy and she'd go off and she would be, she would be just like my, you know, a mother. It was quite an interesting experience. And I, I cared very much about her. She was lovely and Ronald and Leonard as well. And the family is all involved to this day in the business. So that were, those were my Estee Lauder days. Now I'm going to take a breath (laughs) because Mm -hmm. I've just spoken (laughs) and I'm going to have a sip of water. Can I, and Anastasia, if I, if I yeah. can go in a little bit, I, I mm-hmm. wanted to go back to, you were saying that you were a saleswoman and how good you were at it. And I, I was remembering it as a Scorpio. I remember um, I used to help my mom also. They used to have a store and I, I would sell things at the store. And I think what I had and I see it in you is that I was able to know a knowing of what the person was looking for. Mm-hmm. They, would, they would tell me, oh, yeah. I'm looking for, uh, I have a niece that is going to be her birthday. I would instantly get this image of the things that this mm-hmm. person would need and was able to bring that something to, to her. Is that the way it happened to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, because uh, I always had this innate, it, there's no, there's no, um, there is a reason that I, that I'm now a medium. Uh, my, my mediumship opened uh, later in my life uh, because yeah, I could read people. I, and I knew what to say. I think that's why people liked me. It wasn't that I was said what they wanted to hear necessarily because I didn't always, but I was just, I was, I was knowledgeable, you know, without my knowing how I got that knowledge, <laughs> which is intuition, right? So sales is intuition if you're good at it. I mean, if you, because you have to come from first sales is about being honest. I don't know if that holds true today, but it, it, for me, it has always been, I'm authentic and I'm honest. So that was really important uh, and quick being able to make in, in a store, especially in that environment, at a counter, you, uh, there are things that you recommend because they are the things that you've been told to recommend in general, but you'll find the, the, the customer, the perfect customer for the perfect item or the perfect dress. When I used to choose things for like Jacqueline Onassis, that can be pretty intimidating. I just picked stuff I think I'd like to see on her. You know, I could mm-hmm. see this dress and I could see, or this suit, or they were pants suits a lot in that, in that, at that time and very vibrant things. And she never wore those so much, but she would love everything once in a while. I'd pick out something. She'd go, you have, you have, you're giving me color. Finally, <laughs> someone's giving <laughs> me some color. Uh, but I, yeah, it's in, it's an instinct, um, an intuition. It's that gut feeling that uh, is extraordinarily important. Um, one of the reasons I picked different uh, and went to different, uh, I didn't take everything I was offered. I turned down a lot of different jobs. But one of the things that I would do is if I liked the people, uh, 
if I respected what they did, if they were honest, as far as I could tell, their advertising was okay, was good. Um, I, those were my criteria for who I worked for. And I worked for the, the very best because of that. Um, and, uh, it changed as after the cosmetic industry. Uh, it changed a bit for me because I went back into, uh, well, let me finish just after Day Lauder, um, how I got into Lancome <laughs> because that's a whole other journey. Uh, in about 75, I was offered by the, their, these companies all were owned by someone else. So Lancome is a, an amazing French company that was bought by L'Oreal, another amazing French company that uh, actually was owned by Nestle, <laughs> the chocolate people in Switzerland. So uh, I got to know a group of people that were um, part of the uh, Lancome family, uh, not L'Oreal, but Lancome. And uh I knew them in Paris when I was in Paris and uh, I, uh, I hadn't heard from them in a long time and I was busy doing my thing. And one day I get a, a phone call and the phone call is from uh, the director of Lancome. And he said, I want you to meet the head of L'Oreal who's here USA. Uh, and this was in New York. And I said, okay, fine. Well, this man offered me a job as an int- to travel internationally for Lancome to do promotions. And I was still at Estee Lauder. And, but it was time for me, I just felt it was time for me to leave Lauder. Um, there were, you know, there always are clues of when it's time to leave. I have always been blessed to see, um, keep out of the political situation. The best way in a, in a corporation or, you know, a com- we used to call them companies, a company was to keep busy, do your work, stay out of the politics. <laughs> and I could do that because I was always on the road, right? I never got pulled in uh, too far to anything that was happening in the office. And that was really a good thing. But at the end of Estee Lauder, I did. I started to get pulled in and I I wasn't comfortable at all with it. And there were people where there were teams of, you know, people, one, you're on this team or that team. And I go, no, 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 I'm just here to, you know, do my work. So when I got this offer from the president of L'Oreal, Jean Cast was his name, uh, he asked me a question in the meeting and he said, so what do you see yourself doing in 10 years, whatever? I said, maybe your job. And he loved that answer. He was, he was, it cracked him up. He had never heard that answer from a young woman who was now, I guess, you know, whatever I was, 28, whatever years old. And it was like, okay. And he just, he, he called, uh, he called the Lancome group and he said, oh no, we want her, get her. So they did. Um, they, uh, they asked me to, uh, to do this. And I could go back to Europe this way, too. Because one of the things about uh, being at Lauder is I was in the United States all the time. Uh, and uh, that information was valuable to, to Lancome. But what they really wanted was someone to kind of coordinate the production in Europe, like 
everything that marketing was doing in Paris to, and then bring it back to the U.S. So I actually did U.S., Mexico, and Canada at that time. So what I would do is t- go to Paris and travel around and learn what they were doing and bring all that material back to the United States and then do training classes of um, information. Like this is what's happening in Germany. This is what's happening in France. This is what, you know, and so we could implement that system here in the United States. And it was fun. I mean, it was like a jigsaw puzzle. And I got to travel. I was, I traveled to Switzerland. I worked with um, cosmetics in Europe are sold in perfumeries, uh, little perfume stores, right? They're not sold in departments. Well, some in department stores, but mostly perfumery. So I traveled around Europe, uh, France, England, Scotland, Germany, Switzerland, and I uh, was then also sent to the Lancôme School. I have a degree in um, as an esthetician, skin. I never used it, but well, I did sometimes because it came in very handy later, but uh, I had that degree. They sent me to Monte Carlo because there, there was a company they owned in Monte Carlo. Oh my gosh, a weekend in Monte Carlo working. Okay, I can do that. It was just fun. I mean, I just looked at each as an adventure, each as fun. People were by and large, were wonderful. Um, my speaking French helped a lot, um, again. And uh, it was when I came back to the U.S., I loved imparting the information uh, to the trainers and teachers here um, in New York. So, you know, they'd all come in for a meeting and I would give out the information. So I did that for a while um, until... One day, um, in the 1980s, I guess, uh, now we're, we're talking 1980 approximately, um, when I was at Lancome, there was a, uh, they bought the right, or L'Oreal in general, bought the right to the Versace perfume line. Not the clothing. John A. Versace held that clothing line uh, in the family but the perfume. And when he came over to the United States to look at uh, marketing the perfume with, with the company, um, he, uh, he, he needed someone to do his PR in the United States. So I was asked if I would meet him and I went over to his suite at the Regent Hotel. And I had a meeting with Johnny Versace, who I really knew very little about. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't done a lot of work in Italy. I had been mostly in France and in Germany and Switzerland and England uh, and, I, and uh, Scotland. So I, but I knew who he, who he was because he, he was an amazing designer. And it was at the time when the Italian designers were taking hold in, in the world. Uh, you had Armani, you had Versace, and uh, a couple of others that were amazing, uh, ama- not only amazing designers, but they were very, uh, they were doing new things. And uh, it was fascinating and interesting and different. So when I met Johnny Versace, first of all, I liked him enormously. He was a uh, Sagittarius. And he, uh, his birthday was just near my brother, between my brother and sister's birthday. So I figured 
I, I felt like he was part of my early family. I, I, from the moment I met him, I felt uh, a connection uh, to, to his humanity. Uh, and he, he hired me on the spot. He said, what can you do for me? I said, I don't know. But I, he said, you know, all these people, you know, and I said, I do. So uh, he hired me and I went to Milan to get kind of trained in the Versace quote unquote method and see the clothing, meet the people. And Johnny spoke, uh, his English wasn't great at that time, but he spoke fluent French, which is self-taught French, and it was good. So we spoke in French a lot of the time when I first met him and we first worked together, we talked in French. In French. Then his English improved enormously, again, self-taught. He was, he was a self-taught man. He, he, he was curious and he would go and learn it, whatever it was. And uh, I liked that about him because it made him interesting. It also made him, he was a very uh, dedicated and hard worker. He, uh, and he was always extraordinarily kind to me. He treated me like, I mean, I was an employee for certain, but he always had a, a he came to my wedding later on, uh, years later, he came to my wedding. And that's how I always felt about him. I always felt he was a friend. So um, even though we had many disagreements, <laughs> because Italians are crazy half the time. He'd want to go do something. And I'd say, I don't know if that's the best course of action, being a practical American, dealing with the American press and everything. So it was very interesting. But he always listened. Anytime I, um, I was with him, uh, there was, he would come to New York and I would go over to, I was in Milan working at the showroom in Milan with him, every collection. Now collections are four times a year, two men's collections and two women's collections. I was on a plane a lot and I'd spend three weeks there once I got there. So um, I would uh, come back to New York and then he would come to New York and he would uh, either travel around the country or we'd go, I was also in charge of, of, of uh, the boutiques he was opening around the country and I would liaison with those people and help, help them buy and work with press. So I worked with their, the boutiques and I worked with the press. And um, I remember very clearly one of the most important moments with him, we were sitting in um, his limousine and we were going somewhere and he pulled out an issue of time magazine and on the cover was his, uh, well, let's let's just put it this way. Armani and Versace were not the best of friends. They were very competitive. So he pulls out this Time magazine and he says, look who's on the cover. <laughs> and I go, oh, yeah, George <laughs> got the cover. I said, isn't that great? You know, and, uh, and he looks at me as though, to kill me. He says, I should be. When are you going to get me the cover of Time magazine? And I, la I laughed and I looked at him and I said, Johnny. I said, something important will happen and it will be your time and you'll get the cover of Time magazine. It's just Giorgio Armani's time right now. You have more business in, in Japan and, and in the and different places than he does. You know, that's just how it is, right? Well, 
he kind of went, oh, okay, well, all right. You're going to get it for me, right? And I went, oh, my God, get him to cover of time. That's going to be interesting. So I let that go. And many, a few years later, when Johnny was um, so senselessly killed, he, uh, I saw, I thought to myself, you know, I saw a cover of Time Magazine and Johnny was on the cover of Time Magazine. And that was his cover of Time Magazine. And I thought, you know, be very careful what you wish for in this life. So you do get what you ask for. We're always, the creator is always ready to give us whatever it is that we want. Just comes in a very different package than usually than we think, right? And we'll ask for um, whatever. It just, it doesn't usually come in the way we think it's going to come because it usually comes in a way that is for our highest good. So anyway, that, that's my Versace limousine story. But Johnny was, um, as I said, he was a friend and he was brilliant. He, his designs were so different. He made dresses out of chain mail. Uh, you know, it was, it was, he just had a creativity and an imagination uh, and an attention to detail. And he was also genuinely loved. People adored him. I remember being in California in uh, Los Angeles with him at the hotel and uh, we were sitting by the pool and, you know, people would come up to him and he, he, he was very, uh, he loved people. And uh, that's, you know, he was very, also very trusting. And um, that, uh, anyway, he, he, it was, uh, I was very sad when he when he died, and uh, it was uh, it was also a wonderful family working with Donatella, and uh, everyone in Italy was always so generous and kind to me uh, during my stays there, and uh, I had I really did have a, a wonderful time working with him. So we are. Let's see, where are we now? Okay, so I'm in Italy, and this is a whole new experience for me, uh, having been um, uh, working with him. Also, with with Versace, I was able to do some work with the Paris uh, group uh, that were handling his stores, because I knew them from previous work uh, with uh, Saint Laurent, and uh, that was also fun. So I got to travel in Europe a little bit as well. So I worked with Versace until I got married. I got married for the second time. First time we don't need to go into it. <laughs> the second time was more interesting because I, um, I was in New York working as uh, Johnny's, uh, and I was, my office was out of the boutique. We, his first New York boutique was built uh, while I was there. Uh, we scouted the, and, and uh, with his people, we found and we opened. So it was a really important time in his, his career as well. And I was fortunate because he spent a lot of time in New York and in the United States uh, during that period. And um, so uh, that boutique opened and I was out at a party one night. You know, there are just some times when you are just electric. I don't know what it is, uh, but it is 
for me, it's light. It's a, an inner light or whatever that's going on. I met uh, one night at a party given um, for diplomats at the United Nations. I met three amazing men. And I had, uh, I was divorced. And uh, it was just one of those nights. And I dated all three of them. And uh, one I married. <laughs> so uh, as it turns out, when I left Versace, I left because my husband, who is a Peruvian uh, diplomat, uh, was posted from New York to Mexico City. Talk about changes in your life. So I left Versace. And uh, just before that, uh, my, at my marriage, uh, at my wedding, Johnny was present, and he was um, he was amazing. He uh, he, as I said, he was like family, and uh, it was just I don't know. My some of my best memories are of him at uh, at my wedding. So and uh, so then I moved to Mexico City. And I didn't work for the first time in a long time. And I was actually quite, um, uh, it was was interesting. There was plenty to do. So I fixed up a house. I gave dinner parties. I did all the things that wives of diplomats do. I learned Spanish because I really wasn't, uh, I was never fluent in Spanish because my husband at the time spoke French too. He was educated in Switzerland. So we spoke a lot of, of French until we moved to Mexico. And in Mexico City, um, I wanted to learn Spanish. And since, since I know uh, have a Latin base, I was taught Latin at school, I, could, uh, I picked it up really quite quickly. So um, I organized the house. We decorated whatever and did all that stuff. Um, I uh, I enjoyed it. I also enjoyed meeting other diplomats' wives and going to. Uh, there were meetings, uh, fundraising type of things uh, that the diplomats' wives were involved in. There were trips. I got to see many parts of Mexico because of that. Um, I also got to go to Cuba because uh, uh, my husband was. Uh, asked to go on a um on a trip and uh, i was allowed to go and that was a real eye-opener i had never been to a communist country number one uh where everybody not everybody could eat the same food even and they were separate at that time there were separate restaurants um where those visiting or dip, who were diplomats or tourists were had a different menu and I found it uncomfortable. I, used to, I would say, you know, it's very hard for me to sit here and have steak when I'm sitting next to someone who only can get a cheese sandwich. They would, that's how they would do it in the same restaurant. Or there were special stores where you could go buy your food if you were a diplomat. Or I don't know if that exists. This was 83, I think, when I went. And, um, but it was a real eye-opener for me. It was... Uh, an interesting time. I was in Mexico until 86 uh, when I, uh, I just, I don't know, my marriage fell apart and I came back to New York and I learned a lot living in Mexico and I loved Mexico. Uh, By the way, Mexico 
the people are wonderful. Uh, my years there, my three and a half years or whatever it was, were filled with great, uh, meeting great human beings. And uh, I, just, I had a great time there. My marriage was a disaster area. <laughs> so <laughs> there were, it was, a, it was a, an interesting three and a half years. Um, he's not someone who, he's married three times since me, so or twice since me, and he was married once before me. So it wasn't really his thing, um, being married to someone. So uh, I came back to New York, and I came back to New York when there was a huge earthquake while I was in New York. It was at this time of year, it was September. It was around my mother's birthday of September 19th. So it was around the 19th of September. I was in New York for her birthday. And there was a big Mexico City uh, downtown at the Zocola. There was a huge, uh, really a lot of damage from an earthquake, big earthquake. And um, this was 86. So um, I went back to Mexico after I found an apartment in New York. And I went back to Mexico uh, to get some things and then the rest were shipped whatever I was mine was shipped back to me in New York um, and I got divorced so as I'm doing that um, I got a call for a job <laughs> I wasn't looking to work immediately but I got a uh, I got a call once again God was working overtime uh, from Gucci the, the, the Gucci America group, um, some of whom I had met uh, of the Gucci's in, in Europe, uh, but I didn't, I only knew them personally. I didn't know them in a kind of business way. So uh, I thought, okay, well, I need to work. I need to pay the rent. So I went and I interviewed with them and they wanted a director of PR uh, public relations and special events, doing um, events for their boutiques. Now, they had 90, almost 90 boutiques when I left Gucci. We had about four, no, maybe not 90, maybe 60, a lot of boutiques across the United States. And um, I opened quite a few of them uh, for them and in different cities. Um, but we also did fundraising events in some of the, for instance, in San Francisco store, uh, go out, work with them and uh, do a fundraiser. And we did it with a symphony, the San Francisco symphony. So I started working uh, not only for the company in a public relations way, but I started working for them in a uh, non with nonprofits. And that was my first exposure to the nonprofit uh, area, which is an area that we're going to get into on the next show. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, because it, that this work with Gucci, um, I took the job because they were, it was very interesting, the interview. And I want to share it because you have to stand in your truth, no matter what happens the more authentic and, and uh, you are, the better. So they asked me in the interview about uh, working with the family. Now, Aldo Gucci had just been sent to prison, and he was, he was here in the United States living in Florida, and he had just been sent to prison for tax evasion because his son turned him in, okay? It's kind of the Medici story of a family that tries to kill each other, <laughs> Welcome to the Gucci's. 
Okay, so I said to them, I would love to work for this company, but only for the company. I do not want to represent Aldo or the children, or any, I do not want to be involved in any of that. I, I make that in my contract, that the words here, I'll do work with the stores. I'm, I am director of PR for Gucci America, for the stores, whatever. And um, they did they did it. And that way I wasn't involved with all of the other people called me on it all the time, you know, and say, what's going on? And I said, I have no idea. You can call this number and they'll talk to them because I have, I had no time to get involved in their personal um, stuff. And it was pretty uh, loud at that time. They were very, uh, a very interesting family to work. With. So I worked for the company versus for the family, although I knew the family and um, they were lovely. You know, I just didn't, uh, wasn't what I was wanting to do. So I did that until 1990. And that was the year that my whole life changed. And that's where we're going to pick up next time. <laughs> now I'm wondering, Claudia, if there are any people on who have any, has anyone called in or are there any questions? We do have listeners. And so if anyone has a comment or question, please just press one. And we will bring you in. Uh, but I do have a, a comment. Sure. Because so, actually, I live through the earthquake. And when you were living in, in Mexico and in all of these countries, you live in Europe, you live here, you live there. If you could take a message or a learning from each of the places that you live, what would you say? Uh, something that I learned from each of the places. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. Um, each country or each place I have visited, I have learned something through the people mm -hmm. that I've met. It isn't, uh, I mean, for instance, and most of the cities that I've lived, like Paris, the buildings are beautiful. It's so, you know, I love Paris. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. But the people were always what fascinated me about uh, Paris, for instance. I talked to the butcher. I practiced my French, you know, and I talked to everybody. I like, I like people. So, um, and I found that uh, uh, that's how I learned right? It was from, from people. And so in Mexico, it was the same. I learned so much through the people. I spent very little time with diplomats, wives from, from other countries, except for the things I had to do. I really wanted to, to get to know the people. So artists, I'd always be on the lookout. I had a friend who worked, her husband was the American ambassador to Mexico. And uh, she and I would go out with, we take the car, we go to the markets, we talk to the people, we had the best time. Uh, just being there, you know, being in, in the city itself. Now we did go to the museums and we did all of that, which was, it's, it's the, you know what it is, it's the, di the differences of culture, yet we're all the same. If mm -hmm. anything I've learned from all of it, and I continue to learn to this day, is that we're all the same. We're just different outsides, you know, different, uh, different clothing, different, uh, even thoughts, you know, it's, but it, but yet we're all the same. There's that I saw, 
I, and I, I do, I always have seen the greatness in, in other people. Um, I never knew what it was until I got to, to years later. Um, and I started to become a meditator and all of that. But I, it, it uh, and the cultures, each culture was so different. And I had so much fun learning. Um, who knew the differences between in just South America alone, Latin America, they jump everything. Every country has its own personality and its own mm-hmm. way of being, its own dialects. And in Mexico, you have mountains where people on one side of the mountain haven't met the people on the other side of the mountain, you know, and near Oaxaca and all of these states, they're all different. It's amazing. The world is an amazing place. And it's always made me, I've always been curious about it. And my curiosity has been a blessing. It's been fulfilled continuously uh, to be able to, to be in these cultures and to, to learn so much. I'm so grateful. Um, and I enjoyed it. I was a, a really willing participant in all of it. <laughs> Thank you, Natasha. <laughs> we have one last question before we say goodbye. It's okay. a very, very interesting life story. Is there something that Anastasia can offer on how to develop intuition and ways to help others while maintaining our own inner truth? Hmm. Ah, that's a good question. Okay, so first, you know your intuition is that gut feeling that you have in the pit of your stomach when something is not good or is good. It's like our inner radar. That's what it is. It's just as simple as that. We used to just say gut feeling. But it is, that is that the intuition. So a simple way to know if something is right for you or not is how do you feel about it? We're going to feelings, and we'll talk more about that next week because that's when my feelings all exploded, um, or next month, rather. Uh, it is really important to listen to that inner, those inner promptings, that if it feels good, go for it. If it doesn't feel good, do something else. You know, you can be driving in your car, and you can be going somewhere, and all of a sudden you'll get a feeling, oh, Go left instead of right. Well, you could try that and see and become a little more and and test it, you know, Uh, because I believe spirit is there uh, giving us information all the time. Uh, And the only way we really get it is inside. So and that's how you learn how to stand in your truth. All that standing in your truth is, is if it feels good, you do it. And you're and at the same time, you're kind and compassionate and it it. and you remain, um, the feeling remains coming from your heart space, okay? Not from your head. We analyze and overanalyze and everything all day long. The minute that we can drop into our heart and think from our heart, feel, really feel from the heart, that's how we use that inner, those inner, that inner promptings, the inner, um, the intuition. It's all from the heart space. Does, 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 is that complete? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the answer. And Anastasia, your life is an example of that, of following your intuition, of uh, when the bus comes by and opens the door, hey, do you want to come in? Yeah. It's just, it, it, mm-hmm. things happen and you just have to be open to that. But I love that you have uh, 
in your story, when you listen to your story and, and people, when you get to replay it, you'll see that there are this and that message embedded in the mm -hmm. different parts of the story of how to meet people, where the messages you find, and so on. But we have reached the end of today's episode, and we are so looking forward for the next month in October when you bring us to the next chapter where you just mentioned to us that your whole life changed. So yes, well, put it on your calendar. Uh, yes, October it's going to be full of really interesting stories. <laughs> <laughs> Outer world stories. <laughs> so thank you again for your wisdom, for you sharing your story. If you want to get in touch with Anastasia, please go to www.heavenlymusings.org. And right now, Anastasia is in Asheville, North Carolina and she's looking for things to do, a place to live. So if you know of someone and if you can help us out, this is just to share on the air. So we know that the right person, the right opportunity is coming to Anastasia. Well, thank you, Claudia. It's always a pleasure to be with you too and with <laughs> everyone else. And I look forward to next month. <laughs> Thank you as well, and have a wonderful rest of your week. You too. Bye. Bye.